All right, good morning, everyone. Go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. First Peter chapter one. It's good to be back. We were gone for two weekends and uh, had some good time away. Enjoyed God's creation down at Fripp Island, and um, everything kind of slowed down when we were down there. And it's a blessing when it slows down, but when you get back, you almost get whiplash. Uh, because you find the river's still moving, and uh, you have to jump back in but um, with work and everything else. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was nice to be away. Certainly missed everyone. But um, it's good to be back here opening up the Word with you all. If, you, uh, if you're in First Peter, we're going to be in chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 13 through 17 together. And um, just for some of you who may not know, I've been going through First Peter in Sunday school now for a little while, and I'm just going to be continuing on there this morning to the sort of the next section. I've already went through, I think, about verse 16 in Sunday school, so this morning we'll be looking a little bit closer at 17 and 18 uh, together. But um, it's been an incredible, incredible study, um, to say the least. All right, so chapter 1. We'll start in verse 13. Notice the first word here, therefore. Peter's making a transition now in his emphasis in the chapter. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith are hope, and hope are in God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Well, Father, we find ourselves before your holy word. Help us to take care how we listen. Help us to apply what we hear. And Lord, give clarity. Lord, sober everyone where they need it. As we're going to be talking about that great day of judgment in some measure today, we we pray that you would just help us to look at it in the way you want us to. Lord, just thank you for the preciousness of your scriptures. But also just for the weightiness of it all. Um, Lord, be with us. Give me strength in order to speak these things in a way that brings honor and glory to you. And doesn't exceed what is written. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, 1 Peter. Now, for some of you who haven't been in our Sunday school class, um, like I said, we've been going through Peter for a number of weeks. And when I first started the letter, I, uh, I gave it a, a title, at least for the series. And that title is Following Jesus as Exiles. So Peter, when he's writing, is considering his audience, the readers there, Christians that are scattered throughout Asia, as exiles. Um, Peter looks at these people and regards these people and gives them an identity as exiles, which just means that they're people who don't belong here. They're people who don't belong in this world. They're people that have been chosen out of the world for God. Um, and we looked at that, how that was a rich Old Testament theme of, of exile. Basically living in a world, in, in a place that wasn't your home. And that's the case with these Christians in Asia. That's the case 
It is with you and I. We're exiles. We don't ultimately belong here. Um, we are here for a particular purpose and mission, aren't we? And, um, and this is an important, it's an important identity paradigm to take on so that you will always remember that your lot, your place, your station here is temporary and this world is passing away. And that's what Peter brings up front and center with the, the, the readers here um, in Asia to those who reside as exiles. And I, I put that it, we're exiles, but we're following Jesus as exiles. In other words, we're not just sort of waiting here, you know, just wondering what's going to happen in the end without any purpose or without any direction. No, we're following Jesus as exiles. And actually, that's the other reason we're exiles is because um, we're rare. And, and most people don't like the fact that we follow Jesus. Uh, they don't like the truth as it is in Jesus. And that also makes us exiles. That also makes us strangers, foreigners to people. And, but we are, aren't we? We're following Jesus. That's, in some ways, all that it means to be a Christian. It means to follow Jesus. When Jesus calls the early disciples, what does he say? Follow me. And those two words basically sum up Christianity, you could say. Um, certainly lots more to be teased out. But really, crucially, that is, that is what it is all about. Following Jesus' exiles. Now in the first chapter, up to about verse 12, Peter tells these elect exiles, all the glories and blessings that God has given them in Jesus Christ. He talks about the spirit they've been given. He talks about the fact they've been given new birth by his mercy. He talks about the fact that they, like I said, are, are exiles, that, that they are foreknown by God the Father, that they have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, that they have grace and peace in the fullest measure, that they have an inheritance that will not fade away, that they are protected by the power of God, that they have purpose in trials, And that they are privileged recipients of the promises, of the prophecies of the Old Testament in verse 10 through 12. That they are living in an era, that we are living in an era that prophets like Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah looked forward to. We are living in that era, that era post-cross, post the coming of Christ, as other writers would say, the last days. That's, that's who we are. That's where we live. We live in an amazing era, an, an era with incredible amount of understanding and clarity and light, and also a, a time where we have immense responsibility because of that revelation and light. We can't ever forget that. And so that's everything that Peter is sort of pointing out to these people. Before he starts to tell them anything that they've got to do, he wants them to understand who they are and what they have. And this is extremely important for us as we think about obeying and as we think about living for Christ. We also have to understand that we first have been possessed by Christ. We, we first have an acceptance with Jesus Christ. We first have uh, an experience of the love of God in history uh, that has brought us out of sin, that has set us apart to obey Jesus Christ, that brought us in covenant with God. All these things. This is who we are. This is what has happened to us. This is what we have. And it's so important that we understand that God wants us to live out of a state of acceptance and confidence, not constant doubt and trepidation. That is not what God wants. God doesn't want us to wake up every day fearing His wrath. That is not what God wants. God wants you to be overwhelmed at the grace given you in Jesus Christ. He wants you to be overwhelmed at the lavishness of it all. Um, this is why Peter starts out this way. This is why Paul starts out the way he does um, because we need to come to grips with the glories that have come to us in Christ. However, however, there are, there are things to do, aren't there? We have all these wonderful things, and yet there still is responsibility. And before we dive into our text, I want to just say a few things. Um, and many of you have, have heard me say this before, so it won't be new, but... It's worth a refresher, and for some of you who haven't heard me say it, maybe it'll help you. It is very important as you read the Scriptures, and as you think about the nature of God and salvation, that you always come to the Bible's conclusions about the Bible's doctrines. Okay? It's always extremely important to come to the Bible's conclusions about the Bible's doctrines. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you some examples. I was just sitting here thinking of a few even while we were sitting here. 
Paul speaking of the gospel of grace, right? That we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works of the law, right? Glorious doctrine. Yet, Paul understands that this doctrine can be taken to a wrong logical conclusion that therefore now the way we live doesn't matter. That matter of fact, maybe we should sin a little more so God's grace is glorified a little more in forgiving us. Therefore he writes chapter 6, shall we go on in sinning that grace may abound? May it never be. Don't come to that conclusion about justification by grace through faith. How about forgiveness, that we are forgiven past, present, and future of all our sin, glorious doctrine of forgiveness and atonement. And yet, at the same time, it doesn't negate the fact that we still ask for forgiveness, don't we? When, when we sin against God, there's still this relational dynamic where we ask God to forgive us, right? So we don't want to come to the conclusion that therefore now there shouldn't be ever any guilt in our lives felt, or there never should be any, any calls for, 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 for forgiveness and, and, and asking the Lord and confessing our sins. We have to be careful about that. How, how about sovereignty of God? The sovereignty of God, you could come all, to all kinds of bad conclusions about that, right? I mean, let's, let's, let's take a couple. We believe that God is 100% meticulously sovereign over every dust particle that you will see in the sunbeam, right? We believe that 100%. And yet, this doesn't mitigate our responsibility or our impetus to pray, right? Or, or, or negate the decisions that we make as being sort of a fiction, well, that's not true, right? Our decisions matter big time. Um, our prayers matter. Um, the fact that God has predetermined all those who will ever be saved, and yet this doesn't mean that when God appeals to unbelievers to come to Him, or when we appeal to unbelievers to come to them, that, that God is being insincere. Remember, He says that in Romans 10, all day long I stick my hands out to a disobedient and obstinate people, and they would not come. And this was God expressing His emotional angst and, and, and grief over the fact that these people won't come. Is that insincere because He's predetermined all people that will ever be saved? Well, certainly not. We can't come to that conclusion. Uh, about God's predestinating uh, choice. God is sincere when He appeals to the unbeliever to come. What about the new birth? That the fact that we have the Spirit of Christ now and He has come to indwell us and He has completely broken the back of sin in our lives such that now, John says, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Those who practice His righteousness are righteous just as He is righteous and those who practice sin are of the wicked one. Well, I mean, you could go on to say from there, well, I guess that means we don't sin anymore. We have a power in, in us to such a degree that, that we can literally be perfect in this life now. Well, you can't go there, can you? John says that he who says without sin is deceiving himself. You see what I mean? There, there, are, there is a razor-thin edge that you have to walk as a Christian. Or you will find yourself understanding God wrong and your salvation wrong and the way you must live in a wrong manner. How about this one? Satan is ruler of this world, Paul says. You don't want to come to wrong conclusions about that one, do you? Paul calls him the God of this age. Well, well that, yeah, that must mean that he's on par in terms of power with, with our God, right? Well, not even close, right? It's not even to be compared, right? Satan himself is a created demon, and yet, he still is called the ruler of this age. And yet, he's no match for Jesus Christ. Not even close. The demons cower in Jesus' presence. They dare not challenge him because he's the eternal son, full of power, glory, and might. So you've got to be careful, don't you? You have to be careful about the conclusions you draw from the Bible's doctrines. This, this, this compels us to really understand the Scriptures holistically. We have to really be careful um, about the things we say. Usually you get in trouble on what you deny in the Scriptures. Not that there aren't some things you should deny. You should deny some things. But you have to be careful about what those things are. Well, as it regards to our text this morning, there are two things here that Peter states that, that if, if you just take one piece out of it, you could come to some wrong conclusions. All right? But there are two realities Peter gives here that we must hold in tension. Let me read the text again, and then I'll state what these two things are. Verse 17 and 18. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, 
Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. All right. So here's what I mean. You got to put these together. God is your father and your judge. That's what he says, isn't it? God is your father and he is your judge. And the second thing is, we are judged by works, yet redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That's what Peter says, doesn't he? Says both of those things. So, so as it regards our Father being our judge, Peter wants us to have a healthy fear of God. That's what he's after. God is our Father, and yet we cannot treat Him casually, thinking that He's the kind of Father that doesn't care about our actions. You know, people in our culture like to attribute the title of Daddy to our Father. Yet we have to be careful here, don't we? If by daddy you mean that, that he's one that you can seek refuge in and sort of crawl up into his lap and lay your burdens down for him to carry, then, then yes, of course. Jesus is the one who said to live in the bosom of the Father. That's, that's rich. And we're there with him. But if you say daddy, meaning that you can manipulate him and regard him like a great pushover, then absolutely not. Our father is our judge. He is impartial, an impartial judge. And yet he's our loving father. God cares how we live. And the second one, as it regards judgment by works and our redemption by the blood of Jesus, Peter wants us to understand that just because you're forgiven, cleansed by Christ, you can't come to the conclusions that your actions and your behavior don't matter. As a matter of fact, your works will demonstrate who you are, won't they? That's a prevalent theme throughout the Scriptures, that your works, your actual works, what you actually do, not just what you think about, but what you do, The way you live your life, the way you behave, the way people perceive you and see you, your actions will demonstrate who you are. Your works and deeds will reveal if you are a sheep or a goat. They don't make you a sheep or a goat, do they? They don't. Your works don't make you a sheep, do they? They don't. But they show, they reveal, they they demonstrate who you are. And the day of judgment will reveal this. But the flip side is that while it's a judgment according to works, it's not a salvation on the basis of works. You've got to hold that intention. It's a judgment according to works. You will all be judged according to works. What you personally have done. We're going to look at that. And yet, Peter wants us to be in awe and find great comfort in the blood that redeemed us to belong to Jesus once and for all. Knowing, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, but with precious blood. So Peter Peter has no trouble telling you, be sober, the day of judgment is at hand, and you will be there knowing that you were redeemed with precious blood. That's what he says. So while judgment sobers us, the blood of Jesus relieves us and assures us and reminds us of our source of ultimate acceptance. But you have to live with these truths in your mind. People can get in trouble very quickly by elevating one over another. And I would argue that Reformed circles elevate justification by faith and Calvinistic doctrines of grace, doctrine of unconditional election, these kinds of things, to a degree that they really do, in many ways, make obedience an option and a fiction. Like it really doesn't matter. After all, Christ obeyed for me. 
Peter will have none of that. All right. Let's look at these verses together. We must live holding these truths closely if we're to live according to God's word and have a good day of judgment. So, verse 17, if you call as father, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear. Peter begins here by saying, if you call as father, if you address as father, NAS says, if you address as father. The word is, is it means to call on, it just means to appeal to. This term address, it's probably better translated to call on. If you call on as father. Peter, Peter says, if you do this. Peter, Peter doesn't want to strike a bunch of doubt necessarily into the congregation like saying, I think a lot of you don't. That's not why he brings this word if in. I think he's bringing the word if in. He's he's leading into it like this. If you call on God as Father, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But don't come to a wrong implication about it. He's the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Therefore, live your life in fear. You see what I'm saying? he's, He's coming to you pastorally saying... If you call on God as Father, well, I mean, He does too, right? All Christians do, right? Christians are those who call on the name of the Lord. Not only at the beginning, but every day, I hope. That's real Christianity. Calling on the Lord. And yet, Peter wants you to understand, look, (laughs) He's your Father, but He's also going to be the one who finally judges you. Therefore, live in fear. But we can stop for a second and just appreciate the fact that we can call on the Lord. That's amazing, isn't it? At one time, God's ears were closed to us. Why? Because we held on to sin. Because we we didn't want to hear from Him. And He didn't want to hear from us. Unless we were ready to be done with our sin. And when you became a Christian, guess what? God's ears were wide open now. Peter actually says this later in his letter. That the, that the Lord is righteous and his ears are open to the cries of the righteous. Now, that's amazing. That gives you impetus to come together for corporate prayer and regional prayer and call on the Lord. That's an amazing thing. Communication lines are now open between you and your maker. That's amazing. And Jesus Christ purchased that access. And, that, is, and that, that implies so much about what Christianity is, right? Christianity isn't about just coming here. I mean, that's maybe an expression. Christianity is about calling on God your Father. That's what it is. It's about knowing God, isn't it? Christianity is about just facts you know. Christianity is about the living God you know. And you personally call on. Listen to the way Paul tells the Corinthians. He says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you do, don't you? That's what, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to call on Him. Speak to Him. So it's a privilege that we can call on the Lord. It's a privilege that we can call Him Father. You know, one time we were His enemies. Did you realize that? One day, one time you were under His wrath. If you would have died in your sin, you would have faced the wrath of God. And yet, if you're in Christ, that wrath, that hostility was taken away. And now, not only are you His forgiven subjects, but you are His children. Peter actually talked about that a little bit earlier in the letter in verse 13 when he calls us children of obedience, or verse 14, he says, as obedient children, as, as children of obedience. He's, he's thinking in his mind of, of sonship and the fact that you're his son and his daughter and his child. Well, that means you're his, he's your father. And that's just a tremendous truth that God is our father. So many implications to that, right? It certainly implies that he loves us with a love that is, that is way more than our love for him. I mean, our kids love us. We love them more than they probably love us. Now in their lives, anyway. That's probably true. 
Think of that. Let that sink in. God loves you more than you love him. He does. As high as the heavens. Unfortunately, our love is so fickle, isn't it? And yet his isn't. He's our father. He's glad to be so. He actually brought that whole thing about. Right? That's his idea. We get adopted. But it implies a radical change in our state from when we were unbelievers. I mean, and, 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 and the natural dynamic between children and fathers is really, he's provider, we're needy. I mean, how many questions can a child ask in a day? To their parents, right? To their dad. But there's a reality there. There's a reality there that we are, they are utterly needy. <laughs> and thankfully, our Father, the living God, is not like me, who get very tired and weary of my children's requests. And granted, many of their requests probably are unnecessary. But he never, he never, never gets tired of hearing from us when we legitimately state our needs to him. But we must also remember the truth that our Father is also the one who will evaluate us in the end. He will be our judge in the end, as he will be for every other person. In other words, the fatherhood of God as presented in the scriptures is not a trite or casual relationship. It's a deeply affectionate, welcoming, and loving relationship, but it must not be understood as a presumptuous one. We cannot think that he doesn't take note of our every thought, word, and deed. In other words, there are those who say they call on God and claim his fatherhood, and yet don't live accordingly. Peter says with no uncertain terms, just because you call on him as father doesn't mean your behavior is pointless or unimportant. So this is where Peter goes. Addressing his father, he wants to now shift it to make sure you have a holistic view of your father. And he says if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear. So let's think about the impartiality of God for a second. He says that he's the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Impartiality. This speaks to the kind of judge that he is. <laughs> Impartial. No favorites. Unlike earthly judges, as good as they may be, our God is 100% impartial. No respecter of persons, no matter who they are or where they are from. God uses completely righteous scales of justice. He understands everything through and through. Cosmic justice is not achieved by man, only by the living God. Think of a few of these texts here with me. Acts 10, 33-34, after the gospel now turns from Jerusalem and begins to go to the Gentile nations. Peter there experiencing this shift in, the, in redemptive history to focus now on the nations. Cornelius, one of the first to, to be a recipient of this gospel and blowing Peter's mind. Peter sees Cornelius and his household come to faith and now he goes back and relates to the disciples what God is now doing and opening up the gospel to the rest of the world. And Peter says this, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Welcome to him. So here the impartiality is with regard to what? To nationality, right? To ethnicity. Geographic location. God is no longer regarding the Jews in a special way. Peter says God is, 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 is now going to the nations as evidenced by Cornelius' inclusion into the family of God. So, so Peter learns that we should learn 
That God does not adjust the scales of his justice for any nationality anymore. God doesn't, God doesn't, now he's not partial with regard to his grace. Any ethnic background, any geographic location now. is a potential for the gospel. God is nation blind, ethnicity blind, and yes, color blind with regard to the gospel and to his justice. He is utterly impartial. Well, what does he look at? Well, Peter says, those who fear him. Oh, those are welcome to him. Those who fear him and do what is right. See that action part, you know, you have to do righteousness. He looks at how you regard him. Do you fear him? And he looks at actions, what you do. And he will embrace all those who fear him, regardless of nationality or social class. Your nationality will not get you stricter judgment on that great day. Your skin color will not grant you special favor. See, See, partiality cuts both ways, doesn't it? By favor and by harshness, right? Both of these ways can be partial. You can be partial by favoring one person over another based on ethnicity. You can be partial by being overly harsh to one person based on their ethnicity. God is impartial. Probably worth saying in our culture today, currently, White people are being treated overly harsh in the media because our culture says that we have, white people have inherent bias toward non-whites just because we're white. And oftentimes, non-whites are overly favored and treated with partiality because our culture says that they are victim class by virtue of their skin color. Well, God is impartial. He doesn't care about those things ultimately. Certainly rejoices in the diversity. But as it regards eternal matters, and as it regards His justice, He is impartial. And He's no respect of persons. We must be clear on these things. If there's any partiality in any of you, towards someone of a different color, ethnicity, then you need to repent of this grievous sin. If you look down on others just because of the melanin in their skin, then this is partiality. Racism can go every way. No, we must embrace all those whom God embraces, who fear the Lord, right? As brothers and sisters in Christ, red, yellow, black, and white. Right? They're precious in His sight. If they fear Him. (laughs) If they fear him, God is impartial. This becomes a dominant theme with regard to ethnicity in the scriptures. God is impartial. Romans 2, 9 through 11, listen. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Right? There it is. He is no respecter of persons. He does not, it does not matter to him about where you're from. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. There is none. Ephesians 6, 7-9, through 9, With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Partiality is a big deal in the Scriptures. Paul tells Timothy to do nothing with partiality or with bias. So when I talk to men about the truth or talk to them perhaps by way of admonishment. Ethnicity matters nothing to me. I speak to you as a man. Not as a white man, not as a black man, not as a Chinese man. I speak to you as a man. And I would say most of the time in our culture, people appreciate that. Men appreciate that. I do that because that's the way God is. When you stand before him, none of that's going to matter. What's going to matter is if you live a life that shows you fear him. 
So God's impartial. He will not judge you with leniency because you're a pastor, because I'm a pastor. He won't judge you with extra harshness because you come from a broken family. He won't judge you more severely because you're wealthy. And he won't relax his justice if you're poor. God is impartial. You have to understand that. And he's going to judge according to each one's work. Each one. That word, each man. How many people do you know? A thousand? Every single one of them are going to stand before God. This is the consistent testimony of Scripture that God will judge every man according to what he has done, including Christians. Consider some of these texts. So lots in the Old Testament, lots in the New. I'll just give you a few. Uh, Psalm 28.4, David praying here. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their reward. David understands that this is part of the character of God here, that he is a just God who will bring every good deed and wicked deed to account. Therefore, he prays on this basis. Lord, bring their wickedness to justice. Give them their due reward. Proverbs 24, 11 through 12. Now, this is, this is a pretty powerful one here, I must say. Proverbs 24, 11 through 12. This could be a whole message in and of itself. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we didn't know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay a man according to his work? Boy, that's gripping, isn't it? There will be no excuses before God, brethren, on why you didn't or did or didn't obey him, why you didn't obey him, why you didn't live according to what he's revealed. There's not going to be any excuses. He says, he says do not say this. Behold, we did not know it. You can't say you didn't know, especially now more than ever, right? On this side of the cross, having Bibles in our hands and on our, on our shelves. We can't say that. No excuses before God. We can't say, we didn't know we, we were supposed to love our brother here. We, we didn't know we were to forgive them. We didn't know we were, we, we were not supposed to forsake the assembly. We, we didn't know that you demand our whole lives. We didn't know that people that we were to, to go and rescue those who were perishing without Christ. We didn't know that prayer was so important. We, we didn't know any of these things. Does he not weigh your heart? Solomon says. Doesn't he see through all that? All those excuses. Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will not he repay a man according to his work? God sees and weighs our hearts, brethren, no excuses. Everything is laid open and bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's just the truth. He sees you. Psalm 11, his eyelids are open to the ways of men. And he tests them. He tests their hearts. Are they going to be faithful to what he's revealed or not? That's what, that's what testing is, by the way. That's what testing is. It's testing your fidelity to his word. In good times and hard times. But don't think he leaves you without divine help. He does. And part of the effect of the doctrine of the day of judgment is to keep you reading and keep you praying. <laughs> so that you don't turn from the right or to the left, right? Because if he goes silent on us and, and we don't hear from him anymore and, and we don't have the light of his word in front of us anymore, we're going to start to drift, aren't we? That's just what we do as sheep. Like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us our own way. That's where we'll go. We'll go our own way. That's why you have to stay in the scriptures, right? That's why we have to stay on our knees because power comes from him. Direction comes from him. That's why we read our Bibles. It's not because we, we need to check off quiet time list. That's, you know, on your, on your worst days, if that's what it is, better than nothing perhaps. But that's not why we do it. Ultimately, we do it because without Him, without His Word, without His clarity, without His power, we won't have a good day of judgment. 
Lots more in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 17, 10, 25, 14, 32, 19, Ezekiel 24, 14. I, the Lord, have spoken. It is coming and I will act. I will not relent and I will not pity and I will not be sorry. According to your ways and according to your deeds, I will judge you. He's gonna, in that day when the Lord judges people, no one's going to argue with him. Because there'll be a list. Right? And, and there ain't nobody that's going to overturn that list. Yeah, here's all the evidence. Right? So, that's what he's saying here. I'm going to judge you according to your ways. How about this one, Matthew? So that was Old Testament. There's lots more. Here's Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to His deeds. Every man. Matthew 25, 31-33. But when the Son of Man comes in all His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one Another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. So on the day of judgment, that's the picture you get of Jesus Christ coming, and all of a sudden there's a sifting. And what will be the determining factor of the sifting? A belief in the doctrine of justification by faith alone? Nope. That'll certainly be in there. But that's not what Jesus touches on in Matthew 25. What does he touch on? You tell me. Works. What'd you do? Given cups of cold water, visiting those in prison, clothing strangers who were naked, feeding the hungry, all of that, Jesus says, you, you did it all to me. That separates the sheep and the goats. So you'll be judged according to works. You will be judged based on, is that your, is that your life? Then you demonstrate yourself to be a sheep. And if not, if you've lived selfishly ambitious, then you will demonstrate yourself to be a goat. Sobering, isn't it? Romans 14, 10 through 12. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So here Paul is talking about bickering in the body over matters that, um, I guess you could say there's some, some latitude in terms of belief in the church. You want to believe that you've got to keep the Sabbath? That's fine. Just don't tell me I have to. If you want to regard every day as alike? Well, that's fine. You just don't tell me I have to. Right? If you want to drink wine, that's fine. Just be careful with it. Be careful with your liberties, lest it make someone else stumble. There's, there's different, there's, there are some, you want to call them secondary things, which I don't like to use the word secondary. I can't think of a better word off the top of my head. But the bottom line is this judgmentalism was starting to crop up in the church based on some of these matters that weren't of first importance. And, and Paul says, look, you're going to stand before God. You need to be really careful and clear on why you're judging. And if you're judging, we're all going to stand before God one day. And listen to what he says. For it is written, he grounds now him saying, we're going to stand before God. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. Paul then says, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Do you hear that? Give an account of himself before God. You'll stand before them, him, him and you will give an account. What does that mean? Give an account. Peter uses it in chapter 3. When he's talking about um, giving an account of the hope that is in him. Well, what does that mean? Well, it has to do with what he believes and why. Right? He, he's going to give an account to the unbelieving world of, of what he believes, that is, he believes in Jesus Christ, and why he believes in Jesus Christ. Right? He's going to do that. That's what you're going to do before the Lord. You're going you're to give an account of yourself. Right? So he's going to say, Mark, here's this time you did this. Why, you know, I know why. Why'd you do it? 
There's going to be an accounting given. I don't know all of what it looks like, but that's what Paul says. Each man will give an account of himself to God. So the day of judgment's real, isn't it? Jesus, all the apostles, live every day in light of it all. 2 Corinthians 5, 9-10, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Why? Because we don't have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? No. Because we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. <laughs> there it is. Can't get much clearer. Can't get much clearer. Who can forget Revelation chapter 20? Right? Don't have time to go through there and read it. The whole of humanity gathered before the Lord. The books of the works of men are opened. Men are judged according to their, to, to their works, aren't they? But thank the Lord there's another book. What's that book called? What's that book called? Book of Life, right? Oh, what a precious book. I'm going to tell you the truth. You're going to want to be in that book, aren't you? You're going you're to be so relieved that you're in that book on that day. You can know you're in that book today. You can, if you trust Jesus Christ. But you have both going on there in Revelation 20. You've got every man judged, and yet there's another book. And it makes sense now, right, why Peter would say, he's going to judge everyone according to works. Therefore, conduct yourselves in fear. The fear of the Lord is a, is a common fundamental trait possessed by all Christians and stated to be so from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis 20.11, Abraham said with regard to, the, to Abimelech in Egypt, I think he was saying this to the Lord. I forgot to look back at the context on this. I thought there, he said, I thought there is no fear of God in this place, that is in Egypt, and they will kill me because of my wife. See, that fear of God was a concept to Abraham that would keep people from fear, or keep people from sin, keep people from evil. This is present in Abraham's thoughts about God, the way you should view God. You should fear God. And then in Revelation 19, and a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God. All you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Which is somewhat instructive because Revelation 19, I think, is actually at the second coming. So it means that we go on in some ways fearing him, even the eternal state. So it doesn't necessarily always imply the fact that we dread his wrath. It's more holistic than that. It can include that, but it's more holistic than that. And I would argue for believers, that's not necessarily the primary. I would say that it, that it is sort of fearing the fact that you're going to stand before him as judge, but in, in a sense that you don't want to displease him. He's your father. He's redeemed you by, by the blood of his son. You don't want to treat that as a common thing. But let's think about this issue of fear a little bit more. When I define the fear of God, I like to use... Two different older commentators to capture the sense of it. First one is Derek Kidner, who says that the fear of God is awe and reverence at his majesty and authority. I do, I do, I really like that definition. Awe and reverence at his majesty and authority. That word awe, unfortunately, kind of disappears into the background when we think of it. But, but if you've ever stood at the Grand Canyon you get a sense of it. That's awe. And that's how we're to view God. In His majesty, in His authority, in His ability to judge righteously, and in His ability to destroy both body and soul in hell. Because that's what Jesus says, right? Fear Him, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Soul in hell, disciples. So that's one aspect, this reverence and awe. And then the other part that I really like is what Bunyan says, who says that the fear of God is the sense of the all-seeing eye of God retaining on the heart. That just sense that God sees me. God sees me. God sees me. It's always there. 
That's the fear of God. The idea is that the, the eyes of our hearts have seen the true and awesome and terrifying living God, and now we live in light of his reality. We no longer see evil and sin as normal and rare. <laughs> we now see righteousness and love as, as our highest pursuits. We, sin as, we see sin as horrific and criminal and pervasive now that we've seen who God is. And that means you fear him. You have a right fear of him. You have a right reverence for him. You, you've seen him for who he is. The fear of God has to really do fundamentally with the vision of God seen him. God shows himself in smoke and fire at Sinai. Why? He says in Deuteronomy, so that you might fear me. He displays himself so that you fear him rightly. You don't think he's just some pushover. Grandfather in the sky, passive monk, whatever you want to, whatever comes to your mind, you want to see a God of glory, power, majesty, love, Truth, grace. This informs your fear, your awe, your reverence at who God is. Interestingly, in Leviticus 19, 2 and 3, Moses says, or God says to Moses to say, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall fear his father and mother. And you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord. That's interesting, isn't it? There, fear, fatherhood, is combined. Fearing parents. Kids. Kids. You should be fearing mom and dad. Not that every day they're going to beat you. (laughs) But that they have an authority from God that is for your good. And that if you transgress that, they can discipline you. They should discipline you. But they do it for your good. You should fear them. You should revere them. You should reverence your parents. You know, right now, you live in their home, right? You can't go off to the mission field, right? There's a limited amount of things you can do. But one thing you can do that is very near and dear to the heart of the Lord is to honor your parents. To fear your mom and dad. Let them know that you know that they are God's leaders in your lives, right? And that they have a job from the Lord to teach you, to train you, to discipline you. That's a good thing, because you need it. But this is, this is the connection. God makes fearing fathers and mothers. And of course, we can draw from that here that, that how much more should we fear our father walking in awe and reverence of his majesty and authority. But, well, how long should we do this? Is, is this fear thing, living in the fear of God, is this something we move past at some point in our Christian lives? Well, Peter says no. You do it during the time of your sojourn. How long do you do it? Until well, you're 70? Well, not, if you die at 70. <laughs> how long do you do it? You do it your whole life. You fear God your whole life. Why? Because you're always going to be his child. He's always going to be your father. You're never going to outgrow your need of him. There's a sense in which he never really wants you to grow up. Not in the sense of becoming not needy for him. Stay like a child in the sense that you know you need him. But you fear him. Your whole life. The word here is literally sojourn. It has this idea that we are exiles here in this world and we go on fearing the Lord while we're here. We don't graduate out of the fear of God one day. This is our hard attitude throughout our pilgrim walk. But how does this square with joy and love and assurance that we're to have, right? You think about the day of judgment, you think about the fear of God, how does this square with joy and assurance and those kinds of things? Well, I would just say to you that fear protects that joy. Fear protects your assurance. Because to fear God means to shun evil and and sin. And so the fear of God, a right regard for who God is, looking at God 
Having a vision of God in the heart will keep you from wickedness and will maintain your joy, will maintain your peace, will maintain your sense of fellowship with the Lord. Think about Psalmist, Psalm 15. Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may abide? Who may live there? Who may live with you? Who may dwell with you? That's the question. Who may dwell on your holy hill? That's the issue. That should be what we want. Who want to dwell with the Lord. How are you going to dwell with the Lord? He who walks with integrity, works righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. That's not a way to be saved. That's a way to dwell with the Almighty. And you, you, you maintain integrity and righteousness and truth as you fear the Lord. That's pretty much all I have. But I want you to understand that. I want, I want us as a church have a full orb holistic view of our salvation in the Lord. You know, what we're going to see next time, either in Sunday school or up here, is just because we're judged according to our works does not mean that, that works earned our salvation either. Peter goes on to say right after this, and he's not schizophrenic, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood. We're bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood gains us righteous status, and yet this righteous status will be revealed by good works, won't it? It will be revealed by good works, and those who live doing good show themselves to be the redeemed. And that's what Peter is saying. Let me leave you with one thought. Is it Psalm... 131, my mind is scattered at the moment. There is forgiveness with you. Oh, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Wait, say that again. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared? Shouldn't it be loved? Shouldn't it be worshipped? Shouldn't it be thanked? Well, we've got to come to the Bible's conclusions about the Bible's doctrines, don't we? There is forgiveness with you, therefore you are feared. What does that mean? It means we should be blown away. We should be in awe and reverence and, 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 and just awestruck by the reality that the living, eternal, holy God, who, who, who by no means leaves the guilty unpunished, forgives us. The ungodly. And even though he brings us before him in the day of judgment, and yes, there will probably be some reprimand. I don't know what that looks like. But I know now, even as a justified sinner, I can have discipline and reprimand from the Lord. So I know it's not incongruent with it. But I know that finally, there will be no condemnation. I do know that. And we can walk in that rest and assurance. And yet, we also have to understand that we're going to be there. We're all going to be there. Let's pray for each other. Right? Pray for your leaders that we don't blow it. Um, that we maintain faith and love and hope and joy. And you've got a world out there that's trying to take it in every way it possibly can with every angle. An overtly evil angle and a really noble angle. It'll take it in every way. That's why Pilgrim's Progress is so rich. Because he knows it. It can be done by, by the seductions of the, of the ladies, the sirens, and it can be taken by, you know, the wicked and the evil and the sensual and, and the delectable mountains and bypath meadow. It can be taken all these ways. So we just have to watch it, don't we? We have to, during our sojourn, live in fear, stay in this book, and watch for one another. That's the reason why the Church of Jesus Christ exists. We watch for each other. Um, we need each other. So, let's pray. Lord God, we know that everything you've written is for our good, for our encouragement. It resettles us. It, it reminds us of the, of the most important things. Uh, one thing we do know, Lord, is that we can always find rest in Jesus Christ. 
Um, we know that, Lord, one day, when even though we will stand before you, we know that ultimately when you show us to be sheep, we can say that it's by the grace of God that we are what we are. Lord, that if we've done good things in this life, if we've, if we've given to the poor out of faith, if we've, if we've given cups of cold water to needy people, if we've, if we've uh, said kind things to our wives when they've been stubborn, or if wives have been meek with harsh husbands, Lord, all of these things are done because ultimately, Lord Jesus, you work in us. It's your power. That's supernatural. That's not of this world. It's certainly not native to our, our, our bodies, our unredeemed flesh. And uh, so, Lord, we thank you for that confidence that um, we can do all things through you who strengthens us. And we will. And you protect us through faith. Lord, there are so many rich promises that we have that we don't have to fret ultimately how we're going to do. We can, if we're abiding in you, we, cannot, we don't have to shrink away from you in shame at your coming. <laughs> oh, we can approach your throne with boldness and great joy. And actually, you're the one who enables us to do that. So, so many wonderful truths. Thank you for being with us. Continue to teach us and train us and, and be with my brethren, Lord, each one of them. Help them to always live in light of these glorious truths. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.